0: what makes me good at my job is also what makes me bad at life. This is maybe more than you bargained for.
1: Our next guest has interviewed everyone. My
0: money doesn't jiggle-jiggle. It's a cathedral of porn. That's a little offensive.
1: You're a very fascinating person. How do you connect
0: with people? I'm just so curious about what takes someone to that place. Why people do the things that they do. The question I get asked most often is, like, "How do you not get angry with some of these people, especially the ones who are sort of spewing hate?" If, if people see like you're attempting to wrestle intimacies from them, that's never going to go well. I think also
1: there's some part of me thinks maybe the other person's got it figured out and I haven't. Your former wife said there's nothing real about you. Jimmy Savile, he also said something about insincerity being your speciality. That's good. I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs>
0: I remember it vividly First of all
1: I neglected my personal life To focus on achieving professional success The price was paid by those nearest and dearest to me
0: When did you get that feedback? I saw my relationships as a life support system for my kind of work self instead of the other way around. Saying to my wife, well, this is what I do. I did a lot of great segments just by being available at a moment's notice. I just think, oh, this isn't going well. So it became a bit of an impasse.
1: Is it something that comes with a cost and is it something you want to change? (laughs) You're a very fascinating person. Thank you. <laughs> and I've, you know, I've, as I've read through your story, I read your autobiography as well. I was trying to understand what I needed to understand about your earliest experiences to really understand the man that you are today. Mm-hmm. The, the interesting personality you have and the trajectory you went and took in your life. So please enlighten me. What, what, what are the most pertinent things that I need to know about your earliest years to understand you? Oh my goodness!
0: We could—I I, could—I spend two hours answering that question on its own. I don't know how interesting it would be. I'll try and give you a brief answer. I like the long answers. Oh, do you?
1: Yeah.
0: Well, first of all, my um, parents are—my mum's my British, my dad's American. They are both, um, in in different respects, are sort of free thinkers. They—they so they grew up in the '60s and they embrace aspects of the counterculture. They regarded their own parents as being, in certain respects, sort of limited and cloistered, and 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 so my mum joined VSO volunteer service overseas to get experience of life in Africa. My dad joined the Peace Corps. He would have been probably enlisted to serve in Vietnam, and he didn't want to do that, so he went to teach in Africa as well, and that's where they met. So I was raised. Um, I was born in Singapore, where they were teaching. Uh, my brother was born in in Uganda, where um, where they were teaching at that time. My older brother. But then we set, they settled in London, and and so growing up, I was conscious of of them as people who, who, who really encouraged us to open our minds. And maybe you know in, in, it was sort of ninety nine percent positive, like one percent. I think like a lot of people, you know, people use this term, social justice warriors, right? As a form of judgment about overly do gooding. Like there is an element of. I don't tend to use that term because I sort of. It's become it's been weaponized, but I suppose in a sense my parents were kind of social justice warriors. Like they were very much encouraging me to challenge or us to challenge racism where we saw it, to challenge sexism, to be uh, open to new experiences, not to fall into easy judgments about other cultures and other countries and other people. And 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 I only say the one percent. Sometimes that can be inflected with a little bit of a sense of superiority and I talk a bit about that in my book a slight feeling that we weren't really like uh, quite like other people you know other people were maybe not quite as smart or not quite as literary you know and I don't I don't you know I strive not to endorse whatever is in me remains in me of that I try to unpack and eradicate but nevertheless that's the way looking back on it that's something that I see and pick up on my dad's a writer a novelist my mum is a you know, after teaching, uh, my dad became a very successful literary novelist and travel writer. My mum went on to become a radio producer and worked for the BBC World Service, which is, for, for those who don't know, that's the service that broadcasts all over the world. And it's it's a bit like Radio 4, but broadcast, you know, this tiny language, it's an extraordinary institution. It sort of represents in some ways the best of the BBC, but... um, so I was growing up sort of aware that we, we, you know, we were a family that loved books and, and loved reading and, and, you know, we watched TV and listened to pop music and did the normal things, but I think underneath it all was a feeling that to really count in life, um, you should be a literary writer. Like that, was, that was, without me fully maybe acknowledging it, that was underneath this thing that you should really... I think still my dad probably feels that like he's very supportive of me and my tv making but he's like Lou you thought have you thought about writing another book Lou you're, you're you know you you're, you've got time you've got the talent you can I, I, don't, I don't want to push you into this but Lou you know you should think about writing a book that's a great idea for a book you know that kind of thing anyway so that all of that was under underlying my attitude to life then they sent me off to um, school, primary school, I'm going to have to, I'm, I mean, you wanted a long answer. This is maybe more than you bargained for. I suppose alongside that is the the influence of friends. And, and, and you know, I can start, the, and, and the, so the countervailing impulses of growing up in the 70s and 80s in South London and being exposed to funny, creative people and my friendship group, which, who, who you know, some of them have gone on to work in sort of civilian quote unquote lives as, you know, restaurateurs or or, or, or you know, music, other stuff. But but sa- saliently were uh, Adam Buxton, Joe Cornish, and another friend, Zach Sandler, who were super creative. Adam and Joe went on to have their own TV show, and I was conscious of falling in with a little group, Amelia, of, of um, like-minded kids who were very funny, really into movies, TV. And that was where I suppose I began to feel... That there was, well, you know, I don't want to, oh, in hindsight, it's tempting to um, sort of read back, read back what I do now into that. But I just know that that, that friendship group was very important to me and maybe counteracted some of the more, because I was academic. I was, I was, I did really well at school. I feel like I could just go on and on. Should go. I? Just, should I keep going? I just listen here. Because yeah. the other part of it was that I was, um, I was quite an anxious child so i I would i would i worried about everything and uh i i would think about things that were on the horizon like when i was five or six years old i remember fixating you know there were various things that came and went that really worried me but one was um the idea of maypole dancing which was a big i don't know if it's still like in in state primaries um at that time every may holiday like you would do maypole dancing what is that? sir? it's it's a, it's it's, a, it's an old English or maybe British tradition where there's a big pole. I think it's like a fertility rite. You know, <laughs> it's a touch of wicker man about it. You know, it's an enormous kind of mast, a pole, like maybe like like a totem pole almost, like sort of twenty feet high. And then there's ribbons around it. And as children, you would skip round it, and you would sort of braid the ribbons together to form nice patterns. And I remember seeing them doing it in primary school and thinking like that looks really hard and I'm going to have to do that next year. And I don't know how I'm going to do it. And just, I remember being preoccupied with how am I going to learn how to do that? I only mentioned that as an example, like there were other things like just reading before I could read, I remember seeing my older brother reading and think like, I don't know how you do that. And, and just getting very worried about it. So in general, my, I'm someone who is, pre- I know everyone worries, but I just feel as though that feeling of worry and anxiety was quite a strong background note. And sometimes I would control my anxiety not consciously, but again, looking back by working hard, like by 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 sort of just sort of becoming a, almost like super focused on academic work. And, um, and as a result, I did very well in school. And, um, you know, like those people who look back and say like, well, I was a fuck up in school. I was the opposite. Like I didn't always, you know, I would get in trouble. Like, and sometimes I was regarded as, especially when I was younger, 12, 13 is a disruptive element because I was also quite cheeky and sometimes tried to com- communicate and connect with people via teasing, right? Which is, I don't know, if that's a common... It's quite a British thing in a way. It's certainly a big thing in my family was what's now called bants, right? And sometimes I'd try and do bants with my teacher and then it wouldn't go well. And so, but but in general, which is confusing, like regarding being regarded as a sort of black sheep in class or a disruptive person in class and then – but then also getting in trouble. They said, like, it's fine for you to mess about and get in trouble and then you do the homework and you're fine, but you're a bad influence on the other kids. I used to get told that. You're a bad influence on your – I was like, that's not true at all. Like, if anything, my friends were just as naughty and were leading me astray, but nevertheless, because I could sort of go home and then become sort of organised and focus on my work, I got got for a brief – Period. I got labelled as the troublemaker. Anyway, going through school, I, I sort of the sort of the the, the lodestars for my um, sort of sense of who I was and how I would progress in life, such as it is. I mean, I was never that tactical. But as I went as I went through school, I thought, well, I'm, I'm pretty good academically. I guess I'll just do well in exams and stuff, and then see what happens. And meanwhile. With my friends, we'd be seeing movies. I got into rap music in the late 80s and sort of would dress like a sort of hip-hop nerd. I was smoking quite a lot of weed but still studying. This was sort of, again, age 16, 17, but it never really interfered with my with my work. I went on to Oxford and then, having done well at Oxford, um, left university and and at that point it was like, well, what happens now? that was when it felt like okay now i've no longer really got a clear path does that make sense yeah you know i think if you if you are if you're academic if you find academic work not easy but you find that you do well at it because it's not easy but you apply yourself and you do well at then sometimes life can be a weird um bump in the road like real life it's suddenly like well where are the exams because i know i can do those you know what do I do now? So for a while I thought maybe I would be <clears throat> like a professor or an academic or something, but then something in me told me that wasn't quite right. So then the rest of life is another story. But I, th- I hope that sort of answers your questions about or, wh- wh- th- those different um, those different uh, sort of sources of of of, of how
1: I sort of, you know my whatever it's personality and interests. One of the things that really stood out to me in that answer was your your early relationship with work. You said you used to work hard to kind of suppress or kind of distract yourself from the anxiety of life. Is that accurate? Well, what it is, is, um,
0: well, I, I worried about things in general. <clears throat> and, um, you know, one of those worries was homework or doing well in, in, in school. Like another worry was getting on with my peer group. But uh, insofar as I can... I could control those sources of anxiety. Like, you know, you, uh, work is actually relatively straightforward. Like, if, in terms of like how do I get more, you know, how do I attempt to relate to people better? Well, that's that's kind of hard. It's like mysterious. But how do I do well at these assignments I've been given? Um, then you just sit down and do them um, until you get it right. And, and, you know, a lot of these things are... Aren't, are, are subconscious like I'm not thinking like oh how can I control my anxiety but I would just find that I, I, I if, if exams were coming up I'd get super anxious and um, and I don't mean to pathologize it like I've never been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder i am just s- slightly worry prone and as it happens I've become less worry prone as I've grown up and it may be that there were other things going on you know in my family life who knows um, in in you know, my parents' marriage wasn't always happy. They subsequently divorced. There were other things that probably were going on that were stressful, but for whatever reason, I found that, or without, almost without meaning to, I I would I took my studies uh, very seriously. I have to sort of slightly check myself when I say this because I do. I'm also aware that I've looked back at some of my reports, having kind of got quite attached to this narrative of myself. A sort of super swat, right? Super studious, and <clears throat> I've looked at some of my old report cards, and some of them are, are especially when I'm six or seven. Sort of say, um, you know, Louis is a pleasure to have in class, but I, it, sometimes it would be nice if he would let other pupils speak. He 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 enjoys the sound of his own voice, kind of thing, which is very apropos for this podcast, probably, <laughs> you know. And like, so so I, I I had a sort of rambunctious side, and. It, almost in social settings, my mum tells a story. It's actually in my book, but of, of how when I was about five or six, I would come home and I'd be really sad. I'd be like, "I don't know, I don't think I don't like school anymore." And she'd sort of think, "Well, Louis obviously not getting on well at school. I need to talk to his teacher." And she went into to class and um, and talked to the teachers and said, Do "You understand, Louis is very sensitive. He's a very sensitive young man." As I say, I would have been maybe five or six, seven years old. And the teachers were like, really? Yes, he's a very sensitive, like, just be mindful that, you know, things you can say might hurt his feelings, something like that. And they were, like, struggling to recognise her description of me. And then on the way out of class, she passed the classroom and could see through one of the glass windows in the door, and I was running along the desktops or doing a (laughs) dance on top of a desk. In other words, like, it was almost like in the setting itself, I was a wild child, and, and she was running amok. But also I had like this doubling. Like and then I go home and be kind of be, be worrying about small which I think is probably still true of me in some ways, that I have a um I have that sort of disruptive trickster impulse alongside a certain um a certain sensitivity.
1: Is that a defence mechanism or a, a a way to, I don't know, survive in a social setting? or is that the true nature of you? I think it is who are?
0: I am. And I yeah. think, you know, I could say, "Oh, well, I was a younger child and my parents found me funny and I, I wanted to perform and I, I I wanted my dad to, you know, I, I wanted to get my the approval of my parents by being silly." But the fact is is who knows? Like mm. I just know that you know things like your sense of humor or your inclination to to be cheeky that's just always been in me, you know? I, you know I'm slightly wary of attempting to to sort of
1: um unpick where that comes from because I just know that's 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 always been in me the relationship with work, I, I think, even for myself, I, I learned my relationship with work at a very young age, and I've, I think I developed quite an unhealthy relationship with work at the expense of other things that matter in life. Yeah, me too. I think I can relate to that, and, and that's what I was trying to understand: is like, when did, you, where did your relationship with work come from? On one hand, I was guessing maybe it's from his father, who was very, you know, insistent on mm-hmm. in, in, being an intellectual is a is success, Louis or is it from the distraction of from anxiety and from the social thing where you could be successful at exams because you were good at that so you double down i think it was all of the above like my dad's got
0: both my parents have work ethics that border on the sort of being over the top my dad uh, would you know he's a, he's a as i said he's a writer and at the weekends like he didn't really take weekends off like certainly Saturdays you would often be writing and sunday mornings he was often writing and and he he's an extraordinary I, I want to give both my parents a shout out see I'm my parents were um were basically first generation university educated came from very much not at the high table of life and and so for my dad to to sort of become a wealthy literary writer it's kind of an amazing thing that he did you know in the world of it's one thing to be a popular novelist. That's hard, anyway. Mm-hmm. To be a, a, a novelist or travel writer who's extremely successful, had you know, sold hundreds of thousands or millions of books, just uh, without any leg up in life is an amazing thing. And um, uh, I wonder if I've ever told him that. I, I hope I have. Anyway, he'll listen to this probably because he, he he follows my he follows my uh, career with interest. So. Some of that I would have taken on board just through osmosis of seeing that. Likewise, um, my mum being super studious, going to Oxford, she grew up in Tooting, you know, and and her, her sense of self-belief or her sense of her own destiny, whatever it was, and in her small, you know, peer group of kids who were educated at a state school and then through her own hard work and the support of her teachers going to Oxford... You know, in the 60s as a woman, that was extremely unusual. So that, w- that was in the air. But in the end, I, and my older brother, who was very studious. And the other thing just to reflect on is that I saw my brother as the more brilliant child. Like he was, to, to, the way I saw it at the time was more effortlessly br- brilliant, like or sort of child prodigy material, you know. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was just kind of a sort of irrelevant <laughs> bit of afterbirth. you know trailed around after him and so when i noticed that i was getting fairly good results um when i was sort of 11 12 it didn't feel particularly impressive like it felt like well i guess i could i can do well if i work hard it's not like i'm kind of brilliant like my older brother um but i think when i you know again in hindsight i think mainly what i see is um is a sense that I just felt like this was something I had to do. It wasn't a choice. And I even later on when I was at university, I sometimes used to worry that, um, I wonder if I'm missing out. You know, people say it's the best years of your life and you should be hang you should be just going wild, having fun. And I did a you know, some of that, but I was also conscious of like maybe I'm missing out by working, by studying
1: too hard. That's what I read in into your story of, yeah. of university was that I wrote, I actually wrote in my notes, worked his ass off at Oxford. On the point of affection, this is also something I probably didn't learn from my parents, if I'm honest. I still call my parents by their first names. Um, Did they encourage you to do that? Yes. Yeah. I just didn't, I didn't learn affection. And actually, you know, even growing up at 10 years old, when one of my friends turned to me and went, you're my best friend, my body like, because the, the idea that I was someone's best friend made me cringe, And I had this, I think I had this like emotional intimacy, affection issue growing up. Although
0: I think being a best friend is something you show, but don't say. It's (laughs) a bit creepy. You're my best friend. I remember feeling stressed when a a friend said that to me and and thinking, uh, because then you feel like you say, oh, you're my best friend. And then it feels a bit inauthentic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. You're like, do it. Don't say it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I love you. It didn't feel okay. necessary to then, say.
1: Then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, but what, what, is, what did you learn about affection at a young age?
0: I, I feel really lucky that my parents, um, I feel as though they were, you know, they they worked hard. Like I had a working mum. My dad was, as I say, had a huge wo- drive to be successful. But I, I always felt like the love that they had for me was just taken as red, like I, I never questioned it do you know what I mean yeah, yeah, in a way that yeah. felt positive and even though you know I think there's a tendency or a temptation nowadays to look back and and be thinking about things that could have been otherwise and I think you know parts of that therapy culture are really valid but there's also a sense in which um you can focus on negative stuff and I'm not sure at a certain point how how healthy or helpful it is and 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 f- so for me, I n- I never kind of questioned like the love, the love that they they had for me, and I, it was it was never the case that I felt I was kind of um, seeking their approval. Like I remember friends at school saying, "Well, my my parents say if I do well in common entrance, they're going to get me a watch," and I remember thinking that's quite weird, you know, or. My, my parents never, I never felt like they needed to be, I, that I was in any sense doing, like working hard for them. And if they took an interest, that was kind of a bonus, but I didn't rush to show them like I got all A's or, you know, I was, I came first in all the exams or whatever. I wouldn't really talk to them about it. Like that was just something that I did for me.
1: What about emotional expression? I think that's something that we learn How to say, like, I love you and to hug and to be, to touch and, Uh, because you said bants. Yeah, like, I've, my,
0: humour is really important. I say such a kind of, what, that's so dead, it's cringe. I mean, (laughs) I have my kids' voices in my head, but, you know, humour is a very important way of communicating. You know, humour is really, I often think, you know, in terms of how I see life. That's why I'm worrying, I sound a bit humorless. But anyway, <laughs> how I see life is like, humor is like the, the missing dimension in terms of, it's almost, it can't really be expressed, but my, uh, we we shared a sense of humor as, as a family. And so <clears throat> we would make each other laugh. And so teasing was important. I, it'll, um, just not taking yourself too seriously. My parents were... I would say, um, like, I respected them. I would have, I, I see how my kids behave towards me and I'm um, that classic thing of like, God, if I did that to my parents, that would not have gone well. It's not that I think of them being especially strict. I didn't feel they were at the time, but I wouldn't have dared to, um, I don't know, like, uh, uh, there, were, there was a sense of 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 them having... Boundaries that I would respect and observe. What I mean, about that? they 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 slightly also they slightly cheated because we went to boarding school. Me and my brother, age thirteen, so those difficult teenage years of sort of thirteen to eighteen or thirteen to seventeen, they were part timing it. And if Mum and Dad, if you're listening, I'm sorry, but that's what it is, right? They, I mean, it was weekly boarding, and they got me in the holidays, but other than that, they were getting me half of Saturday and Sunday. So I've got kids who are teenagers, and. You know, that that's where, like, the, the, the a lot of the conflict kicks in. So uh, when I look back at how I related to my parents, there were there were times when um, it felt like they didn't get me or they were being too hard on me or the mixed messages because they were sort of on one hand being free-spirited and saying, like, if you want to smoke some Spliff... Louie, like that's fine, just be careful you don't get caught, like kind of thing. Or other times you'd be like, How dare you? You're going out there. you know, what what are you doing? Like it was like, Well, which part of the are we being are you being countercultural kind of dudes or are you gonna be like Victorian parents? Like, which is it? But in general, um, I I kinda I kinda got it. I kinda got I got I kinda got that um you know, that it was about there was a foundation of love and approval that wasn't you know was unconditional. And 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 I think if I had anything to sort of and I to sort of re- reflect reflect on, reproach them for not reproach, but sort of reflect on things that in hindsight could have been different. It's the feeling that because they were work-focused, and also because their relationship was complicated, sometimes it felt like um. That me and my brother and I were slightly a, a side effect, like we weren't. And it, it's again, I could spin that as a positive, actually. Like there was a sort of a level of us being autonomous, you know. Up we had whatever the opposite of helicopter parents is. They we, we slightly had that, like they were like, okay, cool, you know, you do you, and 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 um, and I think again that can be, I I'm kind of quite grateful in some ways for that. But, um, you know, they had their own thing going on.
1: It reminds me of something Tim Grover said, which I've repeated a few times. He says he used to train Michael Jordan and uh, Kobe Bryant. And he, he I spoke to him on this podcast when we did the LA run. And he said that sometimes an event that happens in our life or something that happens can create our brilliance. Mm-hmm. It can be responsible in the case of that kind of void of independence your parents create. Create someone that works and that goes and gets stuff and that's able to travel and be an island. Um, but it also can create our dark side. Like mm-hmm. the same event creates our brilliance, but also our dark side. So my question to you is from that particular experience of having that independence and feeling a bit like you were a side thing mm-hmm. in their lives, what was then the, the dark side? I can see the upside. I can, What's the upside? For me, it, it felt like <laughs> the upside you were saying is the, the independence you yeah, had. Yeah, and, I think and that's the right. Yeah, yeah. The, being a space to grow and become your own person
0: and not feel that you're especially kicking against anything but license to follow your own interests i think that's all positive i think um uh what is that the look i think in general <laughs> what well, you know i've said this and probably someone else said it as well like that you, you know what you think maybe your disability is also your superpower mm, exactly and i think um uh, i think that i in uh, i think I've struggled with intimacy sometimes, my, you know, and and I think I, 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 you know, in terms of relationship building in, in my private life, like said, it's a running joke between me and my wife, like that she's extremely sort of emotionally acute and that I'm kind of slightly the opposite, which is kind of weird when you think about my job, which hinges on, supposedly being sort of maybe emotionally or psychologically perceptive, but it's almost as though but I see it in my mum as well. Like my mum having worked at the BBC went into um therapy and became a relationship counsellor. And it's funny because um my mum also finds it difficult sometimes to to fully inhabit her her emotions. If it doesn't sound an odd thing to say. I I, and, and I don't know, I'm gonna probably regret saying that, but Let's make it about me, and I think w- with me, I think um, yeah, I don't always find r- intimacy easy. Like it's, it, it, it's so 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 I sort of I, I experience like a lot of the times my work is is a license to be intimate without consequences. Like to get to, to, to a bit like what you're doing now. Like you talk to people, someone in a prison, you know, who's been sentenced to ten life sentences. He's like, okay, how does that feel? So what is, what's life like? And, and then kind of get, getting, or whatever happens to be, all the work I've done in some sense is about attempting to peel layers back and, and, and see inside someone's psyche and then get on a plane and fly off and go home and live my normal life, almost at a, a less intimate plane of existence. And um, so clearly, you know, and the other joke I've made over the years is like, oh, what makes me good at my job is also what makes me bad at life. <laughs> so, so for me, it's uh, I think, and I think you. If you ask my friends, they might say, you know, be like, oh yeah, you know, Louis is a good guy. I hope they would say that. But, but they'd also might say like he's a little bit absent, like he's a little bit. Um, I, I don't feel I'm a, a, an especially attentive or present friend, and 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 you know I'm not. You know, some people are really gifted at friendship, like oh, they. God. They like really get they're there and they think about and they make arrangements and I don't make really I'm I'm not very good at social arrangements, all these sort of boring things that are the qualities that are really the stuff of life, like um just getting together, reaching out. Are you okay? How's it's been a while since I saw you I wanted to let's meet up, let's which in general this is a crass generalization, but I think women are slightly better at it than men. And I think that's been one of the many gifts my wife has given me. Is actually involving me in life, like in a, just a normal, sort of neurotypical way. Whereas I, my tendency would be to sort of disappear into my slightly incel like shell, you know, of, of kind of in a metaphorical shed of kind of counting. I, the joke in my, making my book is like, you know, separating my collection of screws and nails into their different jars. You know what I mean? Like that for me is like that. You know, a lot of guys would be like, "Yeah, that sounds like heaven to have two hours to organise my shed." You know, and not and not realise that you're missing out on the tapestry of life. So I plead guilty
1: to whatever that is. <laughs> Maybe that's just being a man. I can I can relate to. <laughs> it's funny. I was having this conversation yesterday with my friends, where they were all saying, "Yeah, Steve doesn't like to socialise. You know, he, I I would rather sit upstairs for seven days on my own working than like. It was, someone said to me said you meet all these wonderful people on this mm-hmm. podcast and you and it's such a wasted opportunity that you don't text me, hey let's go for a coffee yeah. and it's just outside of my nature my nature is to sit alone on my laptop and work yeah and so again my girlfriend my yeah. partner is the opposite yeah so she's dragging me and so I really think it's quite them.
0: a common dynamic you know not bragging two nights ago I was a GQ man of the year I thank you applause thank you <laughs> um uh, I was one of the honorees and um so there was a like there was a, a banquet, like a a, a a posh dinner catered by Heston Blumenthal. And you know, Stormzy was gonna be there, Mo Salah, Leah Williamson, the footballer. I didn't get him in fight, I must have So got it's not just post. men now, it turns out. <laughs> uh, extraordinary list of like Andrew Garfield, an extraordinary list of incredible people. And it wasn't even an awards banquet. It wasn't even like the BAFTAs, like where you sit and sit through the speeches and then at half past 10, when you're starving, hungry and quite tired, you sit down and eat your food. This was like a banquet banquet where you just sit around and have a delicious meal. And then a few people pop up and say a few words between starter and the main course. So it was like, and it wasn't even that, it was like maybe a couple hundred people, like quite small as these things go. But the point is, is before on the evening of, I was like, I don't want to go. And I said, to, uh, I knew I had to go, but I said to Nancy, my wife, I was like, I am not feeling this. She's like, what is it? I said, I just, I can't, I, you know, I don't know. I just feel really anxious. And she's like, but you're not even giving a speech, are you? You know, Because sometimes it's that, like, what if we win and I have to give a speech? Or or you're worrying about whether you're going to win. It's like, I knew I was an honoree and I knew I wasn't going to say any, I wasn't going to have to give a speech. And it was just the idea of of having to... Talk to people. Like, oh, and in a relatively high high wattage setting. So you think like, I don't want to be wandering around like a blithering idiot. So there's a sort of little stress that sits alongside that. But there was no real reason on paper why I shouldn't have been thinking, well, wow, this is going to be amazing. This is going to be a night I'll remember my whole life. You know, and I attempted to adjust my mindset, you know, using kind of <laughs> Paul McKenna like or Uri Geller, like, you know, just visualize. Think about what this is. This is going to be no one's expecting anything of you. this is a chance to sit down with some amazing people and have fun, but nevertheless, for the first kind of hour I was there just thinking, I kept just sighing <sighs> and Nancy was like, what's the matter So I think that's just for whatever, I think that's in me it's probably in a lot of, a lot of people and um, you just deal with it but the, you know why why should that be the case I, d- I don't really know why.
1: Is it something that comes with a cost and is it something you want to change? Uh, if you're being really honest. If I
0: this. could dial down, I think sometimes, I think I have changed it, actually, is the first thing to say. Because there were times in my life where I said no to things just because I thought that's going to be a bit like, the, you know, I did the maypole dancing in the end and it went fine. I did learn, this will surprise you, but I did learn how to read And, you know, despite all the anxiety I had about doing that. And so, and then as life went on, I think there were times when I said no to things, opportunities, which probably just because the idea, I I was asked to go on David Letterman's chat show um, when it was on CBS. This would have been in around 2001. And I said no, because I thought that's just going to make me anxious. And looking back on it, I probably wish I'd done that. It's not why, would huge... that, why would that make you anxious? I find the chat show experience uh, uh, not especially. I mean, I've done it a few times and, and uh, as life goes on, it seems, you know, the idea of public speaking or, you know, when I first got into TV, it, it, it was like, why am I doing this? This is not me. Like, this is not what I was cut out for. This is not something that I aspire to do. And it sounds really, you know, the whole notion of it. Feels um, intimidating and 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 just a bad fit, and and nevertheless, I knew that you know just briefly, like I was working in magazines as a um, as a journalist in New York, and um, that's I, I I aspired to be a a TV writer partly as a way of sort of avoiding comparison with my dad, not directly, but I suppose that was in my mind was like I want to. Write and be creative, but I know I'll never write books. You know, I didn't feel like I wrote when I wrote. It didn't feel especially as though it came as easily as I as it should. You know, it's hard when your dad, like I relate to people with famous parents, like you know people like you know Jacob Dylan, yeah, who's Bob Dylan's son. I don't know why I reach for that comparison, <laughs> but Jacob Dylan that. Track One Headlight. Do you remember that one? No. Okay, for people who know, they know. (laughs) You know, it's a great track. It was a huge international hit, but his dad's Bob Dylan. That's a painful, maybe not painful, but that's an extraordinary legacy to be born into. And in a a related way, like I was conscious of my dad, his name as a writer really meant something. And that it was, um, that if I was to attempt to write something, it was going to be a case of, very likely kind of falling short, at least in my own mind. But the idea of writing in television w- w- was was less, I felt would set, w- w- wouldn't invite the same comparisons. Plus, I used to watch TV and I liked TV and there was something about the democratic kind of nature of television, the fact that everyone watches TV. I thought, well, that's a way of working in a medium that will connect with people. And so it was in the mid-90s, TV was uh, in a kind of, a mini golden age. The Simpsons was on, Seinfeld was on, Friends was just about to come on. The,
1: there were all these amazing TV shows. Larry Sanders was another one. Did you want to connect with people? You studied history at Oxford yeah. and as someone that is appears to be a bit of an introvert by nature from what you've said about your I sort of double. I have a duality double, yeah. where
0: I'm, I'm partly shy and introverted and then partly outgoing and an extrovert.
1: So with your writing and with the, TV writing was your and with the magazine writing I know you, you did some a stint at um Spy and was it Metro in Boston Metro in
0: San Jose in San, San Jose California.
1: California Was your was your objective and th- the thing that you found fulfillment in your work from was that connecting with people um, Or was it just you I know? don't I think I connected with people
0: not to sound um ox, you know oxymoronic or whatever it is no tautologist, by connecting with people like in other words like I always find I do my best connecting <laughs> Sounds a bit weird. <laughs> yeah. Face-to-face. I, I mean, maybe at one level, but in the end, I think I was just trying to do good work and get okay. approval. Like maybe more than connection, like just trying to sort of get an A at work. Do you know what I mean? Like, so I would feel good and think like, oh, I got 10 out of 10 on my article or on my piece of writing, my, my film review. And then if people said to me, that was really good that was like getting you know like you got a good review or whatever you know you people, people say like you you did a good job then it it was maybe a way of um it's just a little it's just a little uh spurt of whatever that is like just kind of pleasure you know your worthiness what feeling worth you know i don't want to, i i think i've got a healthy relatively healthy sense of self esteem but nevertheless i i think i I, I whether I require it, I enjoy, you know, getting, i got, I've got a series out at the moment. This isn't my attempt to segue into the promotional portion of this interview, but nevertheless, here we are. <laughs> I got a, um, I've got a series out at the moment on iPlayer called Louis through interviews. And we had one that went out a few days ago where I interviewed Bear Grills, an alumnus of this very podcast. I listened to your interview with him, by the way, Thank you. in preparation. And, um, and when it went out, for whatever reason, I think because I thought it was a good show and I hoped it would, I hoped it would get a good reception. I was on um, I thought I'm gonna go on Twitter and see what people were saying. And it was surprisingly quiet. And then I felt a bit like um, okay, now I, I'm gonna I'll, I'll try at Louis Through, I'll try hashtag bear grill. I tried a few different search terms. <laughs> And then I suddenly, I had a vision of my, you know, you get a vision of yourself like, oh, I've become that grubby guy. Kind of like, it's sort of sad. It's like trying to fish for, fish for <laughs> approval in the vast swamp of the Twitterverse, right? Casting my line and nothing much is coming back. And I thought, well, and then one that came back, I looked at it and it said, just watched Louis Theroux's interview with Bear Grylls. Wow, it was hella boring. And I was like, <laughs> I just caught a boot. <laughs> and then I was like, well, that's what you get. And by the way, it isn't boring. It's no, great it's show. not and, boring. But the point I was trying to no. get to was um, then a couple of days later, I got a review, great review in the Times. Just sort of pointing out all the things about it that I knew to be really, really good. It was sort of the perfect review, you know, a rave saying like, this is fresh, it's new, it's different, it's fun, it's entertaining, it's revealing. And I felt really good. And one of us like, because before that, the first three episodes, I hadn't really checked Twitter. I thought I don't, I'm not that guy anymore. I don't really care. Like, I make the shows, and I know they're good. And the ones that aren't so good, I know. None of these is is a clunker. They're all solid. And and then here, and then, and then I suddenly thought, oh, I went back to I regressed into being the needy sort of um, the needy, insecure person, which is you know, and and that guy is always there. By the way, I think a lot of people could probably relate to that which doesn't it doesn't mean you know which which is um which is fine by the way but i suppose to to your point um all you know in all the kind of work in, in the work i do it's not like is it an urge to connect like it's an urge to do good work and then it's nice for that to be recognized and as much as i i could i'd, I'd like to pretend that i don't really care whether people like it or not i do care actually
1: do you know what's funny is my team are very honest with me and we we're in the car the other day and I believe it was Holly, Holly and my team who might be upstairs now. And I said, um, we were talking about your, Louis coming on the podcast. I said, Oh, he's got the new a series out where he interviews people. And I turned to, I think it was Holly. It might be someone else. So sorry if it's someone else. Um, I turned to them and said, how is it? Cause they'd seen it before me and they went, it's actually really good. Oh, nice. That's what they said to me. And yeah. they would be, and they would be so honest with me. They went, it's yeah. actually really good. And then they explained you know what, why you, it was good. I, Cause me, here's my thing. like, that actually, like, isn't it? It's actually like were, when it's I, actually
0: really good. But see, when I because I've, I'm a very glass mm. half empty kind of yeah. guy, it's with respect to praise, yeah. So what I'm hearing there is it's actually surprising. Yeah,
1: I'm here like because I'm here. Like, is that a surprisingly in which case? Why would that be surprising? I can. I think I can assert why it would be surprising. Um, I think that the generation Holly's in, mm-hmm. they don't watch. Um, shows like that on BBC One typically. Mm-hmm. And BBC so, Two, but. BBC Two, fine. sorry. A bit on the BBC, yeah. should I say, yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's what I got from it, is her generation, who are like 22, 23, who spend a lot of time on like TikTok and Instagram and these other platforms, I think um, it was, I was actually quite well, surprised. That's fine. And I think that's you know, probably
0: true. And also, I think in my world, if I'm going to talk about stuff, you know, we're, there, there's a troll in all of us, right? <laughs> and, and, and. In general, it's more enjoyable to talk about stuff and dunk on stuff because it's shit, right? Like, I, I know that sounds horrible, and I I'm slightly right. oversimplifying. I think you're right. There's a little part, of, especially in the in the journalistic or in in sort of the media village, it's like, did you see it? Yeah, yeah, that was rubbish, wasn't it? And there's a sort of reassuring feeling of like, yeah, yeah. let's all <laughs> let's all give it a kicking. Yeah. So, so when you acknowledge that something's good, you're sort of saying like. I'm going to grudgingly acknowledge that that was good. I think you're correct. You know, that's a bit of that.
1: Yeah. I think pretty much everything, especially when, because we probably consider ourselves working in the media industry. Sure. So for the team to go, it's actually really good. Yeah. Um, And then she went on to explain Most things aren't that good. They're not. I mean, most things are fine. Yeah. But most things are like, Slow, uh, only about as good as they need to be. Do you know and what I mean? Especially in the interview format. Like how many other ways can you can create an interview format that is original and inspiring? Yeah. And that's also what I got from her was like, she was talking to me about the way the format was constructed. Yeah, I think we pushed
0: things forward a little bit. Like <clears throat> it's not a paradigm shift. Like we haven't completely flipped the script, as they used to say in hip hop circles. <laughs> but it is, you know, we we worked on the grammar. We tried to do things... A little differently so we created a for one of a better term format you know that allowed for elements of um actuality just being silly having fun or being in live settings where the unexpected could happen but also bits of um uh conversation that would be going to places that were quite deep so yeah thank you for that and that that that's that's thank you for passing that on
1: TV. I I read when you were 18, I think maybe 16. um, If someone had said to you that you would end up in TV, you would have, you would have been sort of perplexed at how that would have, the steps that it would have taken to get you there. That's definitely true. You're you're in San Jose, I believe at the time. Um, Is that where Spy was, the magazine? No.
0: Was that Boston? Just to rewind. And I I also want to mention one other thing, which is because we talked a little bit about studying and and I feel as though the, the, whatever that is, that work ethic has stood me in good stead. But I don't feel that that's. I often think there's, you know, a very understandable sort of misconception about the level of importance of, of academic work. You know, that whole stay in school, kids, and you know, we were talking, I think, off off mic about Mr. Beast, the YouTuber, and you know, the media landscape we're in now. It, it would just it's just simply not correct to say that. Oh. The path lies through academic work, right? And I was talking to my cousin Justin Thoreau, oddly enough, he says Thoreau, who's an actor, he's a director, uh, a writer. He wrote Tropic Thunder, Iron Man Two. He's been, in, he's also like high-profile Hollywood actor. I interviewed him for my podcast. I'm not trying to plug; that would be weird to plug one pod, podcast on another podcast. But he and he he was like someone who struggled in the academic setting. Like he he had ADHD. He um, Plunked out of a school, he went to another school where they recognised his special needs. But the point is that I sort of think so many. I think we, under, we there's a tendency to undervalue those parts of of um, of life that that lead to success that that exists. I mean, maybe you maybe I'm sort of out of line here because it sounds like you are, are all over this. But those parts of like the parts of life that help me become whoever I am part of its academic part of it's, it was almost inimical to academic success it was the part that was free spirited and naughty and that was bunking off school and seeing movies and and um or or get, getting me in trouble and 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 whatever that is and it's hard to really bottle it and know quite what it is you know there there is something that i struggle sometimes with over discipline right and and or a sense of like doing well in controlled settings but Actually, it's that you need the yin and the yang of both. And and when I went out and did stuff that was successful on TV, like working, doing my first segments at a show called TV Nation, having been hired by Michael Moore when I was 23, partly like a work ethic, you know, doing preparation and being, you know, turning up on time, as they say, is like 90% of the battle. But actually then being just sort of allowing those creative juices sort of to, to, you know, whatever that mysterious quality of um, humour and connectivity, just being silly and
1: disruptive, like those are really valuable. They say, don't they? They say conformity is great to succeed in school, but it's not great to succeed in life. Maybe that's what it is. You kind of need to be, to unconform once you get out. You sort of do. And I think, and, and I want to come back to your question, but...
0: But I do think that that's also you know three, four years ago, I started a company, and there's a part of me that's overly um so sort of overly conventional you know and and as a result seeks out unconvention in my work, and that's positive you know it means like I love spending time with people who feel like they give free rein to the darkest and weirdest impulses that I think to an extent we all share but keep repressed, you know whatever those happen to be people involved in. Sex work, or, or or people involved in religious cults, or or hate groups, and and that, that's all sort of my stock in trade is talking to those people because I feel as though I kind of get it, like I, I understand that those that that's part of the full complement, as horrible as it might sound to say, like we all have like unacknowledged and secret um, impulses that you know we we have sort of civilized, uh, uh, in, in you know and, and and kept and repressed into into you know in, it, we've inhibited them into our souls so that we can function. and and not go to be sent to prison or whatever, I'll be cancelled. But um, for me, like I I, I sort of, I I do it to a fault to the point where I worked at the BBC in-house in BBC studios just because I sort of liked the idea of the structure, like I'm a company man going to the factory and, you know, building my TV programs but not owning them and because I just thought you know and I like going to the can I used to love working at tv center because it felt like going to the factory and then eating at the tv center canteen you know it just felt felt like comfortable you know my my granddad worked at the London Water Board his whole life he had one job that he started when he was 18 and and finished when he was whatever 65 you know to some extent those were the times but that temperament is slightly in me the whole time when, when when he left they gave him um, some a box of cutlery. You know, that was the... Like, you know, like you've worked here for 47 years. Here's, here's your sil- your silverware in a walnut case. And it was on a... It was in Pride of Place. Like, not Pride of Place. It wasn't on the mantelpiece, but you, you used to, we used to look at it. That's what Grandpa got when he'd worked at the London Metropolitan Water Board for 47 years. You know, you would sort of reverence it. like, And it was only used for special occasions. And And there's a little bit of that in me. And so when I finally... Went outside the BBC and set up a company three or four years ago. I'm sure most of your listeners probably have their own. Many of them, not most, but many of them will have their own companies or will be fully cognizant of what it takes to make it in the sort of the world of, of of free market and entrepreneurship. But for me, that was just absolutely not my lane, and it was my wife who pushed me to do it, and so. That was a, a case of me needing to break out of whatever I was doing and say, "Do you know what? Whatever you think that is risky or mysterious or, um, you know, a bit uh, a spivvy, you know, like just a little bit of judgment. Like, oh, I don't want to be one of the yuppie guys. Like, we just had an IPO. I'm, I've just got my first Maserati. Like that, because I'm, I'm antagon. You know, I'm complete that that whole mindset." I feel like I'm alienating maybe some of your listeners. Like it's not my mindset. Like, I'm just like, I, I almost valorize the opposite of that, you know, to, an, to probably um, an extent that's sort of faintly unhealthy. Like, like I don't want to be the guy. I don't want a flash car. I don't want to flash clothes. I don't want anything. I want to be anti-flash, right? Like my watch, you can see this. My wife was saying to me last night, um, you know, maybe time for a new watch. This is a Casio, whatever that one is. It's an F91W. These cost like £10, £15. You can get them at uh, Argos. You, have you ever seen that watch before? I have. I, I was listening to a, a program about Andrew Tate on the way here, a podcast. You know who Andrew Tate yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's your, anyway, so <laughs> Andrew Tate feels like he's that guy reduced to its quintessence where he's like you – know, one of his catchphrases was um, people say, why have you got a, you know, green Bugatti? Do you know this meme? And what does he say to them? He says, um, it, it, well, he, he says, says, What he could... I say to them, what colour's your Bugatti? <laughs> right? That's him in a nutshell. Is like unapologetically troll-like, ostentatious displays of wealth and arrogance, right? So I'm the anti-Tate. You can put that on my, you put that on my gravestone, the anti-Tate. So I'm like, I don't give a fuck about your Bugatti. I think it's embarrassing that you have one. No offence. No, I don't. One. I don't have a car. But, you know, fine. You know, and that's kind of a joke. Like that's, I. I what my point really is that that's something I need to keep an eye on, you know, because actually ostentatious, almost like ostentatious humility is its own poison. Like, like, why are you so wedded to the idea of having a shit watch? By the way, it's not a shit watch. It's completely reliable. And it's, I've never had it. The only thing that goes on it is the strap. So, so <laughs> I've got one that's got a. a you can replace the strap, after about 5 years the strap goes. I've got two of these. I'm not bragging. <laughs> I've got one, I've got my I've got my spare one in case I can't find this one. Anyway, last night my wife said it might be time for a new watch. I've got to embrace I'm trying to lean into being the guy that isn't showing off about what a lack of what a not show off he is. You think I've lost the thread? I haven't. The point <laughs> I'm getting to is that um so I needed to start a company and not because it's it's oddly infantilizing after a while. Like there's nothing there's nothing cool about making like hundreds of hours of TV and and not owning any of it, right? That's just me being a little bit of a chump. And partly that's, you know, there's a quid pro quo, I suppose, like, well, you don't get stressed, you turn up, you're making things for a public broadcaster, you're getting a decent salary for sure. But people would say like, why, you know, everyone else. So who do you work for? It's like, well, I'm BBC, I'm on contract. I, I work from contract to contract three years at a time. Like really, you don't have your own company? Like no, why not? Like you know, because everyone else does. Like Jamie Oliver or Hugh Fernley Whittingstall or or you know whoever you care to mention, any presenter, Bear Grylls, would, Bear Grylls of any longevity um, would would be making their own shows. You know, it's it is a, it's a no brainer. And I was like, oh, I guess I just I'm fine doing my. I'm a creature of habit. You know that was sort of what i am just sort of I don't want to mess around with it. And then having done it three or four years ago, like yeah, I probably should have should have done it a bit earlier. But it's so so it's that thing of um, the point, which now landing on the point sounds a bit banal, was that you can sort of get in being a creature of habit, being sort of embracing whatever that you know your own sense of self as um, risk averse and um, conventional. Sometimes you know I needed to challenge myself in order to discover that there was a you know world out there that was sort of more creative, more lucrative, more fun, more adventurous.
1: Ha- that's happened a few times in your life where you've kind of taken a leap into the unknown, which is actually quite surprising having, you know, described yourself as a creature of comfort, even... Habit. Have habits, sorry. Yeah. Um, what no, you- no, I don't mean to habit, like yeah. I'm trying to like tell you off.
0: I did say habit. I, I, maybe of comfort as well, although, you know, but habit is really what I meant, yeah.
1: Creature <laughs> of habit. Because I, I was reading about when you made the transition from being a writer to a TV presenter. Yeah. and. I, I I remember writing some quotes about how... um how like, There was one about feeling like an imposter a little bit to some degree and getting on that plane to go and interview these Christians when, once Michael Moore had sort of um, put you front and centre of the documentary right. and thinking, what the fuck am I doing here?
0: Yeah, that was... I remember it vividly. It's extraordinary as you go through life, so much disappears, but there are times when you realise you're at this mo- sort of momentous moment. I suppose often it's high-stress moments, um, which which is really revealing, isn't it? Because actually risk avoidance, you know, that that almost like, God, my mind's whizzing now, but that benthamite idea, like, the greatest happiness you know in philosophy there's a utilitarian ideal that's supposed to be the the metric for how you judge whether an action is good or not and it's like the greatest will it cause the greatest happiness of the greatest number of people but then if you unpack that like well what is happiness like and what actually how do you measure it and how do you measure is it happiness in the moment is it happiness as it's recollected over time is it um a happiness that you know um you can uh, that will spread to other people or you know it will exist for a 100 years uh, and and so actually there's a, there's a sense of fear and discomfort that will subsequently lead to a sense of 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 triumph or self-satisfaction I, you know is it happiness is it, i don't know like that fear is such a such a blunt instrument for attempting to me- measure reality and um and that in general fear which you would equate with unhappiness can very often be what ends up creating the conditions for real achievement. And I, 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 I remember sitting on this plane having been given a job by Michael Moore as a presenter on you know, TV Nation. It was a network TV show on NBC, one of the, what, there were then three networks in America. I was 23. I, I was, as I say, awkward, in every apparent way disqualified for being a, a, a correspondent on a network TV show. I was in I was having I was in the union like you know As probably still the case but definitely then um, these TV shows were unionized to an extent in America further than they would be in the UK so I would be I was in the Writers Guild of America uh, as a result of being hired and so they were required to fly me business class like I don't think I'd ever been in business class and somehow that contributed to my imposter syndrome my sense like i shouldn't really be here i remember sitting there thinking like this is all kinds of wrong like i don't know what i'm doing here i don't know why they think i'm qualified to do this and nevertheless this is what's happening and and i was th- it was a segment that uh was about you know tv nation was a kind of satirical fact-based comedy show where you went out and slightly made fun of people with to prove a political point or to sort of make some sort of social point. So I was interviewing religious cults about when the end of the world was going to happen. So it was sort of like slightly cheeky, um, irreverent take on r- religious fanaticism or religious weirdness. So the guy's like, I wanted to know, so when will the world end? Is it on a Tuesday? How can I get prepared? And I was sort of in a wide-eyed way, oh, no, like, w- will there be, you know, and are the spaceships go- going to land? And what will the aliens look like? But I was just incredibly conscious of of thinking, like, why have I been given this huge um, – it felt like a big slab of pressure and and sort of licence to fail very publicly and very embarrassingly. And, and I also knew I wasn't, you know, but I am also wasn't so disconnected from reality that I didn't think, like, well, it's a huge opportunity. Like – May, may, my, and my my girlfriend at the time was very supportive, and she's like, you know, you you should you you can do this, Louis. Like you're you're really good with people, and and um and and you know, don't 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 worry. Like you you can you've you've got this. You can handle it. Were you trying to talk yourself out of it? I was. Um, <clears throat> it wasn't like I ever thought I um I I won't do it. Like there's it, it, it no question of like I'm going to do it. Like I have to do it but I, I sort of didn't want to do it.
1: Does that make sense? Has that been typical of your life where you, you know you've got to do it, but it feels kind of painful and anxious as you approach the challenge, even like yeah, with starting I, your own company? Uh,
0: yeah, I think so. Like there's times when, uh, you know, I suppose that's where the work ethic part fits in or whatever, like that part of if if you commit to doing something, like I'm very, uh, I, I hate to let people down. Like if I commit to doing something, um or turning up on time or I still struggle with that part, like especially as you're in the, when you're in the public eye or you're in demand and people write and ask for things, I still, you know, will you come to our school and give a talk or I do, I, I I'm a very, I'm very agreeable in that sort of technical sense. I'm, I'm very inclined to agree to do things and that can get you in trouble because you find you're over. I, I find I over agree and make unrealistic commitments like, oh, that'll be fine. And then I'll do that. And then I'll do that. And then you look at it and you're like, there's just no way on earth I can do all of these things. So I try and ring fence my commitment levels, but that's not easy. So, but in a, in a positive way, um, that sense of like feeling like I need to show up, having agreed to do it, having been offered a, a um, an opportunity, even though it might sound enormously stressful. Like, I would never, I think this may be a world in which. I never got into TV. I don't know quite what I did end up doing. The thing that it makes me reflect on is the extent to which we're conditioned and groomed into behaviours that can be healthy or unhealthy or positive or not positive. And I think that's the part of the libertarian ethos that I have a huge, well, among others, that I have a huge issue with. It's like, oh, just let people be themselves. People need help to fulfil their potential, right? That idea that, oh, you know, you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps, like, I, with all the advantages I had of like a first rate private education, supportive parents, e- even I like didn't see myself as someone who would have various kinds of success. I didn't feel that that was in me for whatever reason. But other along the way, people, among Michael Moore, um, people at the BBC who then commissioned me to do my own series off the back of TV Nation when I got commissioned to do Weird Weekends, my wife Nancy, other people along the way, have sort of um seen things in me that I didn't see in myself. Even this interview series going out at the moment, I, I never it sounds awful. I never aspired to have like a TV interview series. Like it was something that would be mentioned from time to time, and I would say, like, that's not really me. You know, I like going out, like my my comfort, like my happy place really is. In terms of TV, like oh, go and be in a prison for two weeks and film the inmates, or <clears throat> go to a mental hospital, or go to a um, a brothel. Like I made a film about a brothel and just hang out there for two or three weeks and just be a fl- that. That to me is it sounds awful, but that's that's like pure bliss, like work wise. But the idea of oh, we'll have a formal sit down interview and you'll talk to someone famous who probably only has a couple of hours for you, and then we'll piece it all together and do shoot. I, I never thought like that's really something I want to do. But Patrick Holland, who was then in charge of BBC Two, had listened to my podcast and said like I really think this would work. Some not this exactly, but there's a, there's a, there's a TV show that takes aspects of this that could exist that would you know involve you talking to people. And I, and I remember th- I, you would think like oh that would that must have been exciting. Like someone saying like I wanted to do it this TV format. Involves partly chat show, partly documentary. I just thought, I didn't think like that's something I'll never do. I did think like, I just felt very blank about it. I know that's horrible. Like, people are going to l- listen to this and throw up in their cars. But I just thought, oh, that sounds sort of stressful. I'm not sure if I really want to do that. What? But I made myself, the point is, I made myself <laughs> yeah, do it because it I had a team around me who I knew expected me to do it. And at some level, I had enough sense to
1: recognize that it was an opportunity. These people that have seen things in you that you maybe couldn't at the time have seen in yourself or seen roles for you that you maybe at the time couldn't have seen for yourself, Michael Moore, Nancy, and then people at the BBC that you mentioned. Are you aware of what they're seeing in you? Now, in hindsight, what they saw in uh, Yeah,
0: you? I think so. And I think in, with, with a bit of time, I've been able to appreciate um, that. I know it sounds sort of glib and maybe even false modest, but to, to appreciate that I have something to offer. Um, what is that?
1: Well. Um, it makes people feel uncomfortable when you ask them these questions. No,
0: no, I'm fine okay. with it. Like, cause I feel as though I, I can analyze it um, with, with the benefit of 25 years of doing it. I think it's something to do with it, like a little bit of intelligence, a little bit of humor, a little bit of un... sort of unsought awkwardness like I think that's part of it like just being a little bit awkward a little bit of um sort of authenticity or or whatever that is like just sort of feeling like I think maybe that, that same thing of not really fully chasing it or fully sort of needing it oddly enough is almost the pre you know it's like to go through the door you have to not want to go through the door too much. I don't know if that's even that's definitely not a saying and it doesn't actually make any sense, but whatever sense you can make of that contradictory statement if you want it too much, I think that there's there's then you need to step back and think about quite it's almost like then you're not ready um grasshopper. Is that the is grasshopper? Is that what these are yes. saying, Karate Kid? Yeah, I think if I can talk, if I can call you a grasshopper, Steve. No, um, you know, it's like it's that feeling of uh, you know so at the end of the day, um, there's more important things in life, and um, I don't want to overdo. I actually got lost in my metaphor a bit, but I think in the end, it's like those different qualities of of of, of it's it's that complement of qualities, and then just. Sh- luck but I don't think luck really is a quality but alongside I'm now at the position where having done my job for long enough it's put me in a slight I think there's loads of people who could be uh, whoever I am like occupy that cultural place that I'm in but you know and, and partly I've earned my place here and partly I've been really lucky but I think you know when you said something earlier it also made me think of another quality which is to do with which isn't a negative thing which is that you know that idea like you when you were told you know when i was told that oh you know patrick you know is quite keen to do some sort of talk format or some interview thing where you're on tv and I, and i just think like well i'm not really sure i i i think one of my because it goes back to what you were asking earlier about oh what is the downside of these various qualities like i do think there's a term anhedonic have you ever heard that term no. it just means i think it's a clinical term but it sort of it sort of means averse to pleasure or lacking in pleasure. Like, there's a part of me again that um, I think my wife has helped me with is that I a kind of sense that I'm not always connected to pleasure. Does that sound weird? Like I I you know sometimes I, I sort of drift through life and and I have to sort of stop and remind myself. I think because I, I sort of I, I tend to see downsides. And I'm working on that, and and I I really do like I I sort of need to. It's really odd. Like I've won three Baftas. Not bragging. Uh, this it, it just came up, and I and I mention it. it's a fact. And um and when you win a Bafta. You've got a lot of awards up there. I'm not seeing a BAFTA. Maybe those are
1: just <laughs> I presented BAFTA awards, to someone else. Some of them
0: <laughs> one's a camera. I'm not sure that camera is an award or you can do a cutaway of that later. You know, it's odd like I my main thing on winning each time I won a BAFTA my first thought has been oh shit, now I have to give an acceptance speech, right? And have to get up there. And um you know, in hindsight like the pleasure you know, you get a little pleasure over the subsequent years, when you can bring it up again and again, as I like to do, but actually, it's really odd. Like, I, I, most of the time when I get good news, sometimes I don't even, I can't notice the good news. Does that sound really weird? No, that makes sense. I don't have that. Me, thank you for saying that. I think you're being polite. Yeah, I'm not, who, <clears throat> I'm not someone who, I'm not someone who who automatically feels connected to the good
1: things that happen to them. How does one remain happy if they have that kind of default? Uh, oh my God, where am I going to put this third Bafta that I've won? Or now well, I have to do a speech. Well, it sounds awful, but you just sort of follow your routine, you know.
0: And actually, I am a happy person, and um, I, um, I, you know, the, I, I, I take pleasure in the simple things in life. You know, I, I, I like um, doing stuff with the, you know, stuff with the family, or you know, really. I really am a son, terrible. I've met a simple place. Like I watch, I like watching match of the day at the weekend. Like you say like yeah, okay, lots of people like doing that. What's that but you know, like that that for me is one of the small things in the week where I'm like, I know I'm gonna be happy for the next forty five minutes or or hour. You know what I mean? Or yeah. on on a on a Saturday night I listen to Loose Ends on Radio Four and often I'll be cooking and, and that's a small thing. And I get a little a little tiny little boost out of, I um, know I'm going to enjoy it. I mean, Usually I enjoy listening to it. There's little thing, I, I mean, I, I'm not, if someone says like, you're going to go on holiday to the Bahamas, you know, I'm trying to imagine what a really big happy thing would be. I, I would normally experience that as, as stress and anxiety. I think that's quite normal though. Holidays are stressful, aren't they?
1: Maybe you've got your priorities in order, in fact, because you don't seem to be compelled or sat, um, or derive your happiness from, like, the big wanky stuff, from, yeah. like, the Lamborghini, the Bugatti, the BAFTA. Yeah, what colour's your Bugatti? The GQ man of the year stuff. You seem to derive it from the, the simple, intrinsically fulfilling things like, you know, cooking, listening to a thing that's intellectually stimulating. So maybe yeah. you, we're all, maybe everyone else is a weirdo and you're actually incredibly normal. I don't know. I, I think there's more of us out there than you might think, but
0: maybe not. We're all trapped in our own brains. There's no way of measuring. I do think that, um, you know, I mentioned that when I saw that I got a nice review in the Times, that gave me like, a, as I said, I like gave me a buzz. You cared about your work though. Yeah. You really cared about... Well, that wasn't even about... <clears throat> <clears throat> I mean, I do care about the work. I mean, work is a big source of pleasure, like in the sense of either being on location and um, being aware of it going well and getting into it almost like a mindset in an interview of feeling like, yeah, this is all good, like I feel connected, I feel uh because it 's a high stress. in a way i 'm sure you have a little bit of, if you have an interview with someone you feel like you 've been trying to book it for a while, uh the moment comes you're like the next two hours are really important, you want it to go smoothly, you want it to feel like a revealing encounter you you want to be probing and insightful and attentive and immersed and not distracted, but also thinking ahead and and all of that's going on and then it starts and then you feel like, oh, it's going okay. And then afterwards you're like, that was a good one. And then in the edit, you're putting it together and you're piecing things in like that. All of those, the simple pleasures of, of craft, you know, like it's really, it, and it is simple. Like it, it's no great mystery, but that, that's, that's a big part of, um, of how I connect with, uh, well,
1: my own happiness. How do you connect with people? So actually, I wanted to ask you this for my own sort of learning. You've done this for multiple decades. You've sat with people from every corner of the world who have all of these different experiences. And some of them are a little bit, you know, in the nicer sense, a little bit out there. Mm -hmm. I'm glad I landed with a pc word yeah a little bit out there wonder what the non-PC word is <laughs> <in>. <laughs> but you have um it was funny when I int- asked you about the qualities you have I think you absolutely nailed it and all of those make you incredibly disarming that almost like lack of intense seriousness mm-hmm. makes you a really disarming individual um how do you connect with people how intentional is your approach to connecting with mm-hmm. them in your new interview series but also just generally some of it is stuff that
0: you know i didn't I just sort of came by by accident probably most of it which is a thing you know natural curiosity which I think mm-hmm. you have a, a feeling of um of just just wanting to know what why people do the things that they do right and 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 sort of getting out of your own way a bit you know in the sense because the question i get asked most often is like what well, how do you not get angry with some of these people especially the ones who are sort of spewing hate or coming out with stuff that's really objectionable and I find it a slightly confusing question because I think that's so, so far from what's in my head most of the time. I'm genuinely thinking like, why, if, the, if it is someone like, say, a neo-Nazi or someone involved in religious intolerance, I'm just so curious about what takes someone to that place, what, what, what's in their mind, that to actually berate them, to give them a hard time, or even be particularly journalistically confrontational. That's not. That's not my default mode.
1: That's you know? so interesting because I just think in ge- life generally, those who like seek to un- even in our personal relationships and romantic relationships, those that seek to understand tend to build. Bridges, but if you seek to like, as you say, berate, yeah, I get told off on this podcast a lot on like Twitter and in the press, like because I don't berate people. Mm-hmm. Like when I had Matt Hancock here, I asked him the questions I really wanted to know, but I didn't. I didn't come to berate him. No, he would have gone. Yeah, the wall would have gone up had I done that.
0: There's other ways of, and some people use a confrontational approach, and that's fine. And then I think in general, um, you know, there's many ways of doing interviews, and I think probably. You know, I haven't interviewed many politicians, and it's probably related to that—the feeling that they—they—they they, they have their—they tend to have their guard up. <clears throat> they tend to be uh, follow a strategy of, of attempting to be as, as risk-averse, headline-averse as, as possible. And it's like those aren't the people. I'm, I'm interested in people who are genuinely attempt who f- feel like they've got something figured out, or or, or are involved in. A, in a world, or a lifestyle, or just some situation that is is either self-sabotaging or, or filled with angst. So, in the end, I see it as not. I'm not trying to get one over on people. I'm not trying to. I honestly, most interviews I see as a as a potential win-win. You know what I mean? Like, I, I sort of think like, well, there's no there's no reason why you shouldn't tell me the truth and um, you're involved in something that you're relatively open about. And and I'll, I'll just assume that that's probably the case. Now, obviously, you're briefed. You've done as much research as you can. But um, I think if you feel as though you're coming from a position of um, sort of shared inquiry, then that's contagious. Um, I think also... I sort of t- tend to think I think there's some part of me thinks maybe the other person's got it figured out and I haven't right a level of humility so that when they say stuff I'm genuinely thinking like well <clears throat> I guess maybe or may- or they say something bonkers and I'm like well that isn't right but I enjoy c- bumping up against that and I don't go in there thinking I'm going to I'm going to get this person like I'm going to get one over on them I sort of feel as though you know you come in and you just sort of try and just see what's going on you know if if people see like you're you're attempting to wrestle intimacies from them, that's never going to go well. You just create the space and the
1: sense of of understanding and allow them to
0: sort of walk through that
1: everything you've just described there that creating the space to like understand them the humility which is ultimately creates that safety which allows them to open up. Mm. Are the exact things that I know my partner wants from me in all of our interactions. Mm-hmm. So, because you've got that skill in your work, I'm here assuming that you also have that at home. Mm-hmm. Is that correct?
0: Um, I think I could work better on it. Like, I'm very aware that the skill set, I often think about the skill set I have in my work of being supposedly a good listener and an empathetic and present person, I, I slightly fail at. Know, kind of I think a very probably normal way in, in my relationship. Like, I I have a very happy marriage, and probably you should check that with Nancy. Uh, because we, we I'm well, I'm slightly reviewing my own restaurant, if I can use that <laughs> m- metaphor. Um, and um, but yeah, on Goodreads, I gave my book a five out of five, <laughs> and and you know, I'm giving my marriage five out of five. Uh, so I think.
1: And it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode. we on page 157. Are you serious? Yes.
0: (laughs) Gotta get through this. My Life in Strange Times in Television. Do
1: you know what I'm going to say? Get it on
0: audiobook for an extra chapter about Jimmy (laughs) Savile.
1: That's true. Speaking of page 157 and Jimmy Jimmy Savile, on that page, your former wife, seeing as we're talking about relationships and reviewing them, etc., she said, there's nothing real about you.
0: Yeah.
1: And to the point of Jimmy Savile, he also said something which was to the same vein about insincerity being your speciality. Yeah. That's
0: good. I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> it's quite a uh, telling, a sort of ringing piece of uh, self-exposure, where where yeah, I, my wife and Jimmy Savile both make the same critique of my <laughs> interpersonal qualities, finding me lacking in basically authenticity, lacking in sincerity. There's nothing real about. Well, the first thing is. When a relationship is ending, um, you seize whatever you can to hurt the other person. I think it's. I think w- w- when someone you really love and you think really loves you, I mean, I, I, it was my girlfriend at the time, although we were married, and that's a whole other complicated. But but yeah, when that relationship was ending, I think there's a feeling of betrayal, isn't there? It's like I thought we were we were together forever, and I trusted that that would be the case and and here we are, clearly, you, you don't feel the same way and and so I'm in the position of in her eyes being a kind of traitor, an inauthentic someone who didn't deliver on um on what was promised, although it wasn't promised, but what was what seemed to be implicit um I think uh yeah. In sincere, I mean, I remember where we were. Like when the Jimmy Savile, the first documentary I made about Jimmy Savile when he was alive, when Louis met Jimmy, not available on the iPlayer, um, but it's on the internet. You can find it. And um, I remember when we promoted it. Um, before, I think it was when we promoted it, and he he agreed to do an interview to promote it. And he part of that was a profile interview in the Guardian. And he was interviewed at the at King's Cross in one of the in the hotel there in one of the hotel rooms, and the guy from the Guardian came down. And I don't even know why. I don't even know why it came up, um, but I made a joke, and he said, "Ah, insincerity, your speciality." Gosh, are you asking me to get inside the mind of Jimmy Savile, to think about what he meant when he criticised me. I think he thought that. Um, I think that journalistic role where um well I think part I think you know what it is is like the best constru- there's two constructions I can put on that one is just that in journalism you're sort of required to inhabit this place of intimacy like actually like hey let's do this and let's do that and then afterwards you sort of disconnect and sometimes that can feel jarring I don't think actually that's what he meant though like I think I think maybe in some cases there's a there's a part of journalism that can feel slightly, instru- no, sort of transactional, where you're like, let's bro down on location and and have fun, and and yet if you looked at it dispassionately, it's slightly cynical and calculating. It's like, well, you're doing this for a TV program, and and so there's a part of that, that slightly feel a little bit uncomfortable. I think really what he was talking about there was a sense of humour. Um, he was he was calling out. My sense of humour, which is sometimes an aspect of it, which sometimes involves um, almost self-parody, like an element of where you say something uh, almost as a way of sort of parodying or satirising your own. This isn't going to make any sense, Steve, but you satirise your own worst impulses. Like the best example I can give is when I said to. when I was with Neil and Christine Hamilton, right, I did a program and they were accused of sexual assault And and while I filmed with them. And then I uh, and then it would become media circus and I carried on filming. And then they did a deal with The Mail on Sunday to sell their story. And I was interviewing them during all of this. And I said to Christine, how, how much did The Mail on Sunday pay for you uh, for the interview? I was just curious because I knew probably they got 10 or 15 or 20,000 and I was just curious. And Christine said, I'm not going to tell you. And I said to Christine, Christine, this is me. I'm not a journalist. I'm a friend. Like, you can tell me. And a lot of people gave me shit for it, right? Like, that, what I said. But in my mind, like, that was a funny thing to say, because quite obviously, um, I am a journalist. And whether I'm a friend or not is actually not established. I'm not clearly not a friend but I'm not also clearly a friend right so t- that was kind of a funny remark because I was being nakedly insincere
1: mm.
0: which is fun like sometimes to me what's funny is saying like not like sort of saying the wrong thing saying the thing that's sort of brazen as a way of of just sort of identifying the hypocrisy and having fun with it so I, I tend to think that I think that's what Jimmy Savile meant was that sometimes I would say things that were kind of definitively either untrue or quite clearly being said because they were not clearly true. Anyway, that's the way you asked that question. And when you ask a question about Jimmy Savile, I'm going to give you a long answer because it's easy to be misconstrued. But I think that's what he meant. I think I'm in general, like, fairly, um, a fairly straight up Person. But I also think that the tendency to believe your own bullshit, to drink your own Kool-Aid, is, is almost universal, almost a precondition of life, right? You know, Nietzsche, the German philosopher, uh, who I try not to quote too much because it makes me sound pretentious, but he has he has a couple of really good quotes on this where one is um for the true deceiver. You know, for the most effective deceiver, first, he must believe his own deceptions. I'm so mangling that quotation. But the idea that in order to con someone, you sort of have to believe the most effective con artist is the one who believes their own con, you know, mm. he, and, and you know, like, a, or a, a seducer. Like they say that about Casanova, you know, one of the most um, notorious womanizers um, in human history. And they say that he actually for each time he seduced someone, he fell in love with them. You know, maybe it's true for sales in general. Mm-hmm. Like, you really got to, be- if you believe in that. And and so I'm, I'm fully aware that for me to say, like, I'm an authentic human being and that my journal- journalism re- relies on a kind of true connection. I'm, I'm I, you know, the little part of me thinks, like, I, I think I believe that. Um, I'm pretty sure, I, 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 pre- I, I know I do believe that, but I'm not my own best reference on whether or not that's really the case.
1: I neglected my personal life to focus on achieving some sort of professional success. The price of my lack of emotional mouse was paid by those nearest and dearest to me. When did you get that feedback? Because I remember the times in my life where I've got that feedback from friends, family, romantic partners. And at first, sometimes we sometimes argue against it. We go, fuck off. And then we walk away and we go, "Eh, this is true.
0: I think I've had that feedback in my relationships more or less um, consistently. Uh, and 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 uh, until maybe 4 or 5 6 years ago like i th- again like i feel like i'm reviewing my own book like and now folks i am happy and healthy and well adjusted and i've arrived at a, a, a spiritual place of tranquility but i do i am conscious that i um all through my 20s and 30s I saw my relationships as a, I think think the other phrase I use is is like, I saw my relationships as a life support system for my kind of work self. Do you know what I mean? Amen, I can relate. Instead of the other way around, you know? And so I would say like, well, I would take off. When I went to work for Michael Moore, it was even back in, in the 90s, it was a source of, friction in the relationship that like without much warning, because I became the fill in guy who when other people couldn't do segments or because they were, they found it, weren't available, weren't stressed about it. I, I'd be like, let's get Louie to do it. I, I, I did a lot of great segments just by being available at a moment's notice to fly somewhere and, and never thought really, which I don't know that the, that it was the wrong thing to do at that time. I, we didn't have kids. um, And so I'd be like, okay, I'm off for three or four days and um, but as it went on, and then as I had kids, um, and I was still doing the same thing, sort of saying to my wife, "Well, this is what I do. There's a chapter in my book called "This is What I Do." You know, you knew when we married that we would be um, that I was a sort of globe-trotting TV documentary maker, And she, um, she said, "Yeah, what did I do when we, when we met? I was a TV director as well, and I've changed what I do, and you need to change what you do." Like, I don't mean to sound like she was being horrible about it, but her attitude was like, people make a... You need to make an adjustment to accommodate the fact that we now have two small children. And... How did you receive that? um, At first. I think I received that as... Well, not not well. Like, it didn't make me angry, but I, I was somewhat inflexible because my attitude was, look, I was because i went you know I, my parents had my dad traveled a lot for work my mum was a full time tv producer and we had people at home au pairs who um who made sure that when we got home someone was there and would make us a meal and so i was like well we just need to get help she said i don't want i don't want us to get help i said you, she, she said what well, i said i said you, you can do whatever you want to do you you can carry on working five days a week, six days. You can travel as well if you want. We just need to get help. And she's like, I don't, I want one of us to be here. And I want, for some of that, I want it to be you. I don't know. Does that sound, so. You sound like me. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, well, I said, I I guess I don't see it that way. So it became a bit of an impasse for a while. And then? And then, um, well, then we had another child and, um, and she said, well, now we've got a baby and two small children and you've agreed to, take, to make sure you only work in the UK. And I was like, did I agree to that? And she said, yes. And I couldn't remember it, but I was like, well, she's probably right. And um,
1: Did you make rules? I read that you made some rules. We had a rule
0: that I wouldn't go away f- for more than two weeks. And, um, and actually for most of the time, it was t- between sort of a week and 10 or 12 days. Are you flexible now? My, my, I don't want to make my wife sound like... I know there's some people that hear that and go like, well, you know, Louis was obviously bringing back the bigger wage and and so he should have been... I,
1: I honestly think my wife was right about most of that. I feel the same way about my partner. And yeah. it's almost identical that it, it took me to find the right person to compromise my inflexibility, where they they made the case to me that quality time and this relationship was actually an equal priority, let's say, to the work. And with the right person, I was finally willing to bend. And I was finally willing to, you know. So, But I think it takes the right person. For me, it does anyway.
0: Yeah, the right person, the right relationship, the right life stage. Yeah, I also say that these interviews I'm doing, part of that is an agreement that we made. Well, even an agreement, a kind of agreement I made with myself in lockdown and being around, my kids are now 16, 14 and eight. You know, it turns out older children in many respects... Need more management, need more sort of parental presence in their lives than younger children, and so I said, well, maybe a way for me to travel less and not be taking off for you know two or three months a year because you aggregate those two-week trips or tend to- and they add up to maybe a quarter or a third of the year, and now I, I can I can my schedule is much more. Ma- I said, if I do these interviews and we make TV shows in the UK and that there's a more controllable schedule and I can be around more. Nancy helped me set up the company. She's working more. I'm home more. And so it's actually like, it turns out conforming to those expectations of family involvement is really positive. Like it can actually be a creative boon, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not the enemy necessarily. It can be, it can make you a more rounded person that ends
1: up being beneficial. That's exactly what I used to think it was. I used to think it was the enemy of my professional success, but I've come to learn that it may that it's be actually, the friend. It's the yeah, it serves it. Um, you mentioned anxiety throughout this conversation. Now, sometimes when people talk about anxiety, they talk about it as in, um, like like an emotion. They kind of mm-hmm. it's a flippant word to describe a situation where you're thinking a little bit much. But then there's what people would describe as sort of real anxiety, that kind of crippling, like oh, you know, that we've all felt that. It's like insane, unshakable, sort of deep nervousness mm-hmm. about a situation and worry which one are you referring to
0: uh i think the first one i i, I don't think i've ever had a panic attack for example mm-hmm. um i don't think i've ever had a feeling of um kind of in being incapacitated uh, i mean i've had moments where i've had stage fright or mom- you know that that thing where due to you, you just get a, even recently like there's been moments where you just get this sort of tremulous feeling of nerves and your voice starts to shake. Have you ever had that? Where you've been in a situation where – or sometimes it's just – sometimes it, it, it's to do with your – you get into an argument with someone and you get really upset and your voice goes a bit like this. Like it doesn't – you know, and it was just mm. kind of horrible. Uh, or sometimes it's just where you feel like you're, you're – like I've been once or twice – in, in situations where um, I just think, "Oh, this isn't going well," and then you, your confidence goes. I mean, I don't know if that's quite that's sort of nerves, which is slightly different from anxiety. Anxiety, like where, uh, but the anxiety I mainly mean is just a kind of sense of foreboding, a pervasive feeling
1: of um, of worry about something that's going to happen. Because one of the themes we talk a lot about on this podcast is about mental health and about how that affects people that are in high profile, high stress positions. What's your, you know, mental health is a topic that kind of emerged in cultural relevance about maybe a decade ago now. But when I was a kid, I didn't understand it. I didn't know what that was. And I, i be honest, I think the stigma was very much my belief. It was kind of like people are, some people are crazy. Yeah. Um, What's your journey been like with your own mental health? I feel really lucky to have, um, broadly speaking, good mental health.
0: I also think what you're saying is exactly right, and I think that there's a kind of there's a continuity, a blurring that exists so that um, you know, I think mental health as opposed to mental illness is a good way of thinking about it, like that because actually, um, we should all be striving towards being our best selves. We should all be managing our anxiety. I think a lot of men, especially, fail even to recognize when their mental health may not be as good as it could be. I, at the extreme end, you've got incapacitating mental illness that requires so a set of interventions, possibly medication, even sort of residential rehab settings. but for 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 the rest of us, it's just a, it's keeping an eye on on how you're doing and and no you know sometimes I notice my emotions from the outside. like I, I notice that I, my voice is raised, I'm like, wow, I'm angry, you know like or mm. or and, and even when I'm sad. I, or grumpy or whatever it is, I'm not the first really to see it. Or my wife will say like, are you in a bad place? I think we've been guilty of failing to see mental health as a holistic condition. Like in other words, that your support network needs to be in place. You need social, these are really basic, but you need social interaction. You need need, um, exposure to things outside of work. You also need endorsement and approval in work. And all of these things need to be sort of pulling in the same direction. There may be people in your life who are undermining you and you may need support from people to nudge you in the right direction. But, you know, not to sound really bland about it, I feel as though I've, um, you know, th- th- through sort of my wife's sort of perceptiveness and her ability to sort of see how, how just sort involve of involved me in life a bit more, that that's, um, that's kept me in a good place.
1: We have a closing tradition on this podcast, which, um, which is the previous guest writes a question for the next guest. Oh, wow, okay. And the previous guest, you don't get to know who the previous guest was, but the previous guest has written a question um, for you, not knowing it was for you. And they said, what is your opinion on hallucinogens? Hallucinogens.
0: Um, I, my opinion is, I think, um, you know, if you're, if if you feel like you're, if you're of age, like 18 plus, I don't know how your younger listeners are, you know, maybe, even maybe slightly older, um, and you feel like you've got solid mental health, I think it's a, it's not a bad avenue to go down. It's not something I've massively dabbled in. Um, I've noticed, I don't know about you, I, in my social Settings. um, It seems to be mushroom oil is something that's increasingly being used, Uh, and I think actually, you know, you know, and I think we're all aware of the slight, there's a dissonance between our levels of acceptance of alcohol and then the sort of relative unacceptance of things like whether it's marijuana or mushrooms and mushroom oil. Like I'd like to see that leveled out. Like I'd like to see, as it is in California and elsewhere, I'd like to see cannabis legalised. And um, I think mushroom oil, without giving too much away, could be really positive. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> from what I understand. Louis, thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. I've learned so much from you for, for so many reasons. Um And Pleasure. your new documentary on the BBC, BBC Two, and on iPlayer, Louis through interviews is incredible. Yeah, um, the Series people you're six,
0: into, uh, six of them out there
1: there right enjoy. now, um, they're incredible, and you're interviewing some incredible people that are are being very vulnerable and open with you. But thank you for the inspiration as well. You're someone that I've watched for the for decades. Thanks, Steve, and that's given me a, a life full of enjoyments. And thank you for coming and doing this. Pleasure.